It's Thursday, June 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Supreme Court on Wednesday handed down a student free speech ruling, siding with Brandy Levy, the cheerleader who in 2017 posted a profane Snapchat post while off campus after she didn't make the varsity cheer squad. Levy was then suspended from the cheer program for one year. The justices ruled 8-1 to one that the punishment did violate her First Amendment rights. Bianca Quilantan, education reporter at Politico, joins us for the court's first major student free speech case since 2007. Next, we have been hearing a lot about unruly passengers on flights recently and the thousands of dollars in penalties they face. But now, airline industry groups, flight attendants, and lawmakers want more done to help out. Airline reps want the attorney general to prosecute unruly passengers, and there are even calls for mandatory self-defense training for flight attendants. Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC, joins us for more. Finally, the idea of that one big TV hit that brings everyone together may already be dead. Shows definitely still have their fans and passionate ones too, but gone are the universal hits and common entertainment culture. Steven Zychik, entertainment business writer at the Washington Post, joins us for why big TV hits may be no more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Kids should be able to express themselves and they should be able to do so without being scared that the schools are going to punish them. I don't think it like fully sunk in yet. I mean, like it, I, I was really excited. I was like screaming and I was cheering. I'm not even going to lie in my living room when I found out. Joining us now is Bianca Kilantan, education reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Bianca. Thanks for having me. The Supreme Court has ruled on the cursing cheerleader case. This was a, uh, a case brought out out of 2017. The justices ruled eight to one in favor of the cheerleader. This is a story. Uh, briefly, she tried out for the varsity cheerleading squad. She didn't make it. Then she went on Snapchat and posted some of uh, a vulgar picture, you know, F the school, F the varsity uh, team, F everything. And the school basically suspended her from the cheer squad for a year after that. So this went all the way up to the Supreme Court and uh, they ruled in her favor, saying that they shouldn't have at least uh, suspended her for that year. Uh, so, Bianca, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing in this decision. The decision largely says that the First Amendment broadly limits public schools' ability to regulate off-campus speech, especially delivered through social media. This was something that school districts had been arguing is that they actually needed those ability to regulate off-campus speech, especially during the pandemic when school was like shoved online and the lines between off-campus and on-campus were blurred by this whole year. So the high court actually left the door open to educators to protect students by regulating messages that are highly disruptive. So possibly bullying or threats, that sort of uh, speech is still able to be looked at. And that's kind of one of the major parts of this, too, is how disruptive the actions were. In the decision, that's part of what they centered on. They said it, this really wasn't a big deal. They talked about it for five or 10 minutes and maybe disrupted an algebra class for a little moment, but it wasn't a, that huge disruptor where the school cheerleading team couldn't keep operating, all that stuff. And that's why they ruled in favor of the cheerleader in this case. And Justice Breyer, you know, said the school district went way too far in trying to punish uh, Levy for basically a fairly mundane post. You know, she said, F this, F that. And then later on today, she said, you know, I was a frustrated teenager. This is what we do. (laughs) 
So, (laughs) you know, she was very glad that they protected her speech and her future classmates' speech also. In the time that it took for this to get resolved, she's already graduated high school and moved on beyond that. Uh, So, you know, she's this is far beyond her already. Definitely. And I think this was really heard in oral arguments. Brett Kavanaugh was actually talking about how it's really hard to overestimate the significance of not making the varsity team, especially since you only get four years of this and she was denied at least one year fully. So um, he really thought that this was super important to these kids' lives, especially Levy's. And I think that probably contributed to him joining that decision as well. Did they say anything about if this was an overreaction, the being banned from the cheer squad for a year? Did they mention any of that? You know, Justice Thomas, who dissented, he was the one in the eight to one. He thought that the justices had been colored by their feeling that this may have been an overreaction by the schools. But overall, you know, the opinion still rules in favor of Brandy Levy. But the school districts also see this as a win. I talked to the National School Boards Association and they said that they're glad that the high court clarified that the schools do have some ability to regulate off-campus speech. The Third Circuit had originally said that there is a really hard line approach where you cannot at all regulate off-campus speech outside of the classroom. So they're glad that this has been, you know, like a less harsh regulation on this because it is so broad. This is the first major student free speech case since 2007. What are we hearing about how this is going to impact that going forward? As you mentioned you know, earlier, the online portion of this is such a huge component now, and you can be off campus and uh, post something and still be held accountable for it. So what does this do for that part of the conversation going forward? For that part of the conversation, it seems that school districts are glad that they still have the ability to protect or to regulate things like hate speech or bullying or harassment. You know, there's been an uptick in that sort of thing since the creation of social media. And, all, you know, the majority of kids are on social media nowadays. So I believe that school districts are glad that there is this hedging where they can have that power to regulate that sort of speech to that extent. However, the Supreme Court did say that they're going to have, you know, a burden to prove that there's something wrong with speech related to religion or, or politics off campus. So they really want to ensure that kids have the ability to, you know, discuss these things freely and have free speech when it comes to talking about religion and politics and that schools aren't regulating that speech. So I think we might see some issues around that in the future or future cases around that, but largely that this was a rule that solved both sides. It gave Brandy Levy what she needed and also gave the school districts what they needed. For now, as I mentioned, the Supreme Court siding with Brandy Levy on that. Bianca Kilantan, education reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Considering the number of people that are traveling, certainly now, and everyone's going back to uh, the airport, going on vacation, it, it is rare, but the cases are apparently getting worse and more severe and more frequent. Joining us now is Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Thank you. Wanted to talk about uh, a recurring theme that we've been hearing a lot about, unruly passengers on planes. It's been happening a lot, so much so. I think the FAA said they got about 3,100 reports of unruly passengers since the beginning of this year. And the other part of the story is just the huge fines that they're putting out on some of these people that are committing these things. One of the recent stories you shared in your story was 
this JetBlue Airways flight bound for New York. Tell us a little bit about that one, Leslie, if you could. So that one was back in February. A JetBlue flight is bound for New York, had a return to the Dominican Republic. The FAA is alleging that a passenger had thrown a bottle of alcohol, thrown food, and had grabbed a flight attendant. So there are several cases that are like this. Not every case has risen to the level of physical assault. There are alleged physical assaults, I should say. But the increase in the cases is very alarming to the FAA. It's very alarming to the flight attendants and their union reps and others in the industry, including passengers. And in that case, the FAA slapped the passenger with a $32,750 fine. So the thing that's happening now is that a lot of uh, industry groups, flight attendants and, and the unions and everything are pleading with the government to do more about it, either harsher penalties or enforcement of those penalties. What are they trying to say on that front? They're just trying to stop it wherever they can. And of course, the FAA is coming out with these fines, which to the flight attendants and and government officials serve two purposes. One, to hold the people accountable that are committing these acts and also as a deterrent to others and and letting people know that they will face fines. The FAA put in a policy uh, in the beginning of January. It was shortly after the Capitol riot. and There were uh, several uh, events during that weekend that occurred. Some passengers had gotten actually banned off of Alaska Airlines flight for some unruly behavior. They put in a zero tolerance policy to try to stop this from happening. And what was alarming beyond the behavior is that there were so few people traveling and there was such a high number of incidents. It's worth noting that it is very rare for these things to occur, considering the number of people that are traveling certainly now and everyone's going back to uh, the airport going on vacation. It it is rare, but the cases are apparently getting worse and more severe and more frequent. It is against federal law to interfere with a flight attendant's duties. Do we know how they calculate how high these fines go? Because $30,000 for being crazy on a flight uh, does seem a lot like a lot, but how are they calculating this? It goes up to $35,000. They could actually top that amount because that's for single offense. So they look at the circumstances around it, but these are civil penalties. So if you strike a flight attendant, you could be facing other charges. I mean, you're, you're talking about assault and other things. And, and we've seen some passengers, you know, they're, they're arrested upon landing. And then law enforcement gets involved. The flight attendants unions and airline executives this week have asked the DOJ to prosecute people to the full extent of the law. They want to really send a message that these acts are going to be met with serious consequences. They're hoping for people to do more as well. Senator Jack Reed is planning to introduce some legislation that would help with this. Uh, Others are calling for self-defense training for flight attendants. It's currently like a, you know, voluntary type thing, but they're saying maybe that should be part of their regular training. Right. The largest flight attendant union, the Association of Flight Attendants, they rep United Airlines, flight attendants, Spirit, and some others. They're asking for that training to be mandatory. There is a class offered by TSA, and it is voluntary on the flight attendant's own time. So they they want that to be a bigger part of their training. Yeah, self-defense training and maybe some uh, training on how to subdue people, because if there's no air marshal on there, then it's the flight attendants and other passengers that are having to subdue some of these people. I think some some of the airlines are delaying plans to resume alcohol sales. They just don't want to run into all of these problems, and they're trying everything to limit people being as angry as as much as they can. 
They can, and there are various reasons for it. It's not all alcohol, but they just don't want to put more fuel on the fire and, you know, put flight attendants at a greater risk. So they're delaying some alcohol sales in the coach cabin. Um, I was just at Dallas-Fort Worth, and some of the airport bars have signs up saying it is illegal to bring alcohol with you onto an aircraft. Gate agents, some of the airlines are making announcements, do not bring alcohol on board. But the reasons really, really vary. And the cases vary from verbal abuse and insults and things like that, which the flight attendants say wears on them every day, going up to things like assault and some of the things that we've seen in these more severe cases or cases where even passengers have had to step in to try to stop other passengers from acting out. Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Netflix and their executives like to talk a lot about, you know, we want to have everyone's favorite show, but they don't need to be the same show. So if you've got three or four people in your household, they're fine. In fact, they're more than fine if everybody is watching a different show, because that means you're less likely to unsubscribe if you've got sort of four reasons instead of one. Joining us now is Stephen Zychik, entertainment business writer at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thank you, Oscar. You wrote an interesting article about the TV hit and how it's not just dying, it may already be dead. And, you know, we went through this before when Game of Thrones was ending. Everybody was saying there's no big TV show that unifies everybody anymore, that water cooler talk. And uh, you write that this is kind of a lack of common culture. There's so many options, so many things to watch. Nobody's watching the same thing at the same time. And we don't have that TV hit anymore. And even for these uh, companies, you know, these uh, broadcast company streamers, it might not even be in their best interest to have a big, broad hit like that. So, Stephen, tell us a little bit more about it. Not only is it, are the audiences fragmenting, and we all know it in our own lives, we've got so many shows to keep track of and 10 shows that we, you know, we, we walk into you know, a party or we're talking to a family member and they're telling us about a new one. So I think part of it is just the simple abundance of choice that uh, is making it hard for any one of us to see everything that uh, or, or show that everyone else has seen. But I also think, as you point out, there are some pretty strong economic factors here that are sort of working against us. And the biggest of which is that these streaming companies, for the most part, look, they'd love to have big hits. Everyone would, but they don't really need to have big hits. You know, they're not ad supported or if they are ad supported, that's not really the sort of economic mechanism by which they operate, you know, in contrast to a traditional network, even a, a television network like HBO when for years, you know, would rely on subscriptions, but it was often a big show, a Sopranos or a Sex in the City, or as you say, a Game of Thrones that would drive it. That's not the way these streaming services work. Netflix and their executives like to talk a lot about, you know, we want to have everyone's favorite show, but they don't need to be the same show. So if you've got three or four people in your household, they're fine. In fact, they're more than fine if everybody's watching a different show, because that means you're less likely to unsubscribe if you've got sort of four reasons instead of one. Part of uh, what you spoke about in your article, you used the mayor of Easttown as an example, because shows have their fans. And a lot of times they have really strong fans, you know, a really strong fan base, a lot of these shows. And it was a a hit. It's probably going to win a bunch of awards. I watched. I thought it was excellent. But, you know, when you come down to the finale, how many people watched it? Only four million people over Memorial Day weekend. By other metrics, that's not really that much. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, look, HBO's done a great job with that show. I, I too, is a huge fan of it. I think Kate Winslet does amazing work. Uh, The writing and direction are fantastic. But, you know, it's just not a show that's coalescing 
a large percentage of the culture around it. I was talking to some friends, in fact, that very weekend, right before the finale aired, pretty pop culturally attuned uh, people, and they had no idea what the show even was. And so, look, I think that there are still going to be very passionate fan bases. But does that mean that whoever's excited about a show one week uh, necessarily is excited about a different one the next or that many other people are watching those shows? It does not. And in fact, when I get those emails, I often will sort of pass them on or relay them to network executives or streaming executives. And I'll say, look, you know, you've got this whole fan base out there. And then sometimes they'll say, yeah, we know that they're out there, but it just doesn't get a big enough audience. If you're in broadcast network based on advertising to continue it, if you're a streaming service, that's a whole different story. And then (laughs) they're fine with a small audience. But if you need a bigger audience, a lot of these shows are just not generating them. For a lot of times we look at sports, at bigger sporting events. But right now, where are people coming together in this sense, at least? Well, you know, I think you mentioned sports, and I do think that remains a, a fairly big force. You know, I've been following a little bit some of the NBA ratings that ESPN has been generating and Turner, uh, and they've been pretty decent. I mean, the Super Bowl, even with ratings down this year, I think generated more than 90 million total viewers. So I think sports for the moment are still doing that. I don't know if that will continue very, very far into the future. I mean, you're talking about a generation that maybe grew up with esports and video games more than live sports. So it remains to be seen where that goes. I do think certain kinds of reality television, as I note in the piece, non-scripted television, shows like The Bachelor do tend to generate a pretty decent-sized audience. The Masked Singer was another one that was doing that, although their ratings were kind of down pretty hard this past season as well. So, of course, reality television is just another form of sports (laughs) in a way. But I do think some of these competitions, because people really want to tune in to see who, who wins. So I do think there's still an element of that, and obviously a lot of that you have to watch live. That shared experiencing, that's kind of where I want to end here. What does this do for the future of TV? A lot of times, uh, you mentioned the piece also, people build off of those shared experiences and fall in love with new shows, similar shows, shows that are spinoffs, things like that. What does that do for the future of television if everybody is so disjointed? I think this whole trend, this whole fragmentation trend, the whole abundant, you know, peak television thing has been great in one respect, and I hope it continues to be great far into the future. And that is, it's just given voice and platform to so many people who otherwise we wouldn't know about or get to see. And I think we all have shows like that in our lives. I think that's been great for representation. I think it's been great for creativity. I mean, there's culturally so many benefits to having these hundreds of shows each of which doesn't get and doesn't need to get a huge audience because it has the people that it needs to get in order to continue. So I think in that regard, if we're talking about the future, the future is quite bright. I do wonder at the same time and worry a little bit, as some of the experts I talked to for the piece do as well, about what it means for us as a society if we don't have that. You know, I have an expert in the piece talking about how this goes back quite a ways. You can go a little more recently than this saying that even, you know, at at our most divisive times in American history and culture, we could all sing the theme song to Gilligan's Island. Or if you want to bring it a little more into the present, uh, we all had seen that episode of Seinfeld or that episode of of Friends. I mean, these were things that we just kind of all knew and could instinctively relate to, no matter our, our political views, no matter our backgrounds. That's going away. And I think whether that's causing some of the divisions we're seeing or merely a reflection of them, I think it's troubling. I sadly do not see that getting better. I don't see these big cultural moments proliferating in a way that could heal those divides. And I think in that regard, uh, it's sad and a little bit scary. Stephen Zychik, entertainment business writer at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. Thanks for the great chat. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.